Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I'm your host, John Eversall, and I'm delighted to be joined by the poet David Byspiel, whose latest book is Charming Gardeners, published by Pacific Northwest Poetry Series. And not to say too much about it right now, but it is like nothing I've read before. David, welcome to New Books and Poetry. Thank you, John. So glad to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. I'm so anxious to get to this book, but... I want to learn a little more about you as a person. So I know you were uh, born and raised in Texas. Is that right? Um, almost. I was born in Oklahoma. Okay. And, and in northern Oklahoma in Tulsa County. And then I lived there as a very small child until I was about three or four. And then uh, my family moved south to Texas. And I lived there until I finished high school. And I still have people there. I have a brother who lives um in Montgomery County, which is just north of Houston, and my father still lives there. He lives in Houston. Well, that's great. What was uh, growing up there like? Well, I grew up in a um, an enclave, really, of Jewish families in a neighborhood in southwest Houston called Meyerland. And um, so I was surrounded by a lot of, um, uh, as I say, Jewish families. I went to school until um, sixth grade at the synagogue, went to a Jewish um, school, we studied, um, you know, the normal subjects of math and English and so on mm-hmm. uh, during the afternoons. In the mornings, we studied Hebrew and and uh, Torah. And, um, and then after that, I um, moved on to public school. I went to, um, uh, my junior high was named for a um, Civil War general, Albert Sidney Johnson, who was a general on the um, Confederate side. And uh, then I went to... Um, uh, kind of a noted public high school called Bel Air High School that um, has produced some some pretty good graduates. Uh, I have a couple of brothers. Uh, I'm the youngest. They're uh, a fair bit older than I am. And um, so there was a part of my childhood, you know, late childhood, where I was home alone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they had moved out of the house. And um, I think that's kind of a skeleton view. We um, uh, prayed hard. And we played hard. We were an athletic family, and um, I have one brother who was on the United States gymnastics team for a few years, and uh, I myself was a competitive diver. I played baseball into high school, as another brother did. Hmm. And um, so we were um, uh, we were on the run, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a house of books, and uh, kind of an interesting, very interesting, complicated family. Yeah, it seems like it's weird. Yeah, you have like this. Uh, it's I'm trying to think like Texas Jewish community athletics. How was your uh, how was your kind of uh, your take growing up? How did you relate to um, your religious upbringing? Were you did you buy in buy in? Were you in it all the way? It was second nature, 
or were you just kind of like, you know, rolling your eyes at it? <laughs> you know, like, well, what was your kind of disposition towards religion? Yeah, I think I um, probably bought low and sold high. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, you know, I, I uh, our family was um, very devout, very practiced. Um, we participated in um, most, not every, but most of the uh, Jewish holidays. Um, for uh, most of my childhood, uh, we had Shabbat dinner. Uh, my grandfather lived in Oklahoma, was um, very devout and kind of centerpiece of the family um, feeling for religious life. He was an immigrant. But as I grew older into uh, high school, probably, I um, found myself more skeptical of my own faith, um, disinterested in the... Um, the outcomes of thinking about religious experience. And um, I would say at this point in my life, I'm, I'm an outsider. Yeah. Um, and uh, to no one's, no one's um, uh, fault and no one's um, success but my own. <laughs> right. And uh, I know you ended up uh, in Boston in the 80s, right? Like, uh, what year did you graduate high school? I um, finished high school in 1982. Mm-hmm. I um, moved to Boston uh, that fall. I um, was there as an athlete. I was on an athletic scholarship in diving. Mm-hmm. And um, I lived there for all throughout school. Um, I came home to Texas a few times during that period. But, you know, diving is a sport that, you know, to be at a, a certain level, you have to train all year. And uh, though I could train in Texas with my, you know, childhood coach for a little while, at that point, I you know, changed coaches, as it were, and uh, so I made made it a priority to train with my college coach throughout the year. Yeah, I wonder and, how. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, um, and so I spent most of most summers in Boston when I was in college. Mm-hmm. I think that's not entirely unusual for people to go to school in Boston, <laughs> but it was. It, I know you know lots of people leave the city. It's a city that you know raises kids. I mean, Boston is a special place. Um, so many people have been educated in Boston, right. um, either, either as undergraduates or as graduate students or through their law schools or through their medical schools, um, their conservatories, art schools, music schools. And so I think for a lot of people in, uh, in this country, um, a Boston passage uh, is very common. And that's kind of what I experienced. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. Even my own my own wife made the same passage. Um, I was I was really interested because I grew up playing sports. Um, I never really developed any sort of like close kinship with any coaches, just because I don't think my athletics ever got to the level that yours did. Um, your relationship with your coaches, but is there any similarity or differences between like say a mentor in the literary arts with a coach in athletics? Yeah, you know, that's a fantastic question. I've never been asked that before. Um, absolutely. I've coached as well. And I've yeah. Taught, and I think uh, there is a lot in common for those who you're really close to. You know, when you're – and I can't speak so much to the team sports, you know, because uh, at some point I kind of stopped doing them. But yeah. at the individual sport, and I guess if you're to equate being a writer as being in a, you know, individual – an individual um, participant in an art, um, like you are an individual competitor in a sport like tennis or gymnastics or figure skating, diving. Um, the uh, connection is very intimate. 
um, when, and I'll try to describe it this way. You know, I have coached diving, and I have taken divers from, hi, my name is is Blaine, and I'd like to join the diving team, yeah. to Blaine becoming a national champion. Yeah. And you teach Blaine everything he knows. I mean, everything. You teach him how to stand, how to walk, how to think about preparing for for practice, for competition, how to stretch out, how to do a sit-up, how to do a back three-and-a-half and two-meter platform, and you teach them everything. And the trust is has to be really strong Yeah. because they are learning to do tricks for the first time, and the way you get them to trust you is they'll start spinning, and you say, out, kick, now, and they let go. And <laughs> they have to trust that you called them at the right time that they won't get smeared. And they learn to trust that from a very young age. And then, you know, finally, they won't even let anyone else do it. They have to have you do it. Yeah, that's really fascinating. What is that direction? And I think, and I think with, uh, I'll just kind of make that analogy with poetry and the mentor. I think when you're first learning and you adopt a mentor or a mentor adopts you, it's very similar. Um, it took, I think for a lot of poets, it takes a while to shake, shake I don't want to say shake off the mentorship, but shake into a selfship. Yeah. And and certainly um, you've heard poets like James Wright write about his uh, coach-athlete relationship with Theodore Reske. Mm-hmm. For instance, you know, a poet-mentor relationship with Theodore Reske. And it took him a while to shake Reske off. I, I don't mean that in a negative way, but to sure. become James Wright. Yeah. yeah, that's really incredible to think about. Um when did so you're at Boston and your life seems to be the whole narrative of your life now is being kind of scripted by your your engagement and immersion in sports. How did that suddenly change to one in a literary life? What were you? What I mean, did you? I'm not sure what you got your undergraduate in, what you were studying, but I'm sure the life of a collegiate athlete was uh, all consuming. So I'm wondering. You said you grew up in a book of home, you know, I mean, a house, you know, where books were, you know, yeah. readily available. Um, you know, how did those two worlds intersect? And and is it just kind of common that the athletic life eventually has to shed away like the snakeskin and one has to move on to other things? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very uh, apt analogy. Um, in my case, I uh, dove until I was, you know, trained and, and competed until I was uh, 22, and I had a choice to make. I could stick it out for what really would have been two more years and made some attempt to um, advance in diving at the national level, perhaps international level. I don't think I was dreaming about the Olympics in any way. That was <clears throat> a little out of my reach, for sure. You know, I was diving in the Greg McGinnis era. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, I just made a decision. I didn't want to train. And then I wasn't going to be going to school. So I would have been a diver full time. And I just didn't want to live like that. And so, you know, I retired, I think. Um, and it, it was around that time that I began to, um, allow myself to act on, um, a desire to be a writer. Uh, I had read a ton. I have an English major. I had read a lot of poetry. I'd read a lot of poetry even in high school, kind of secretly. I mean, I guess as a 
a jock, I guess. Yeah. You would call it. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, reading poems on the side. I certainly wasn't talking about it yeah. to anybody. And it wasn't that I was in a um, hostile environment as an athlete. Sure. By any means, but it is an environment. And, and um, you know, by the time I started writing poems, I had um, a lot of poetry under my belt, I thought, as a reader. And I'll give you an example. When I, the summer before I left, the summer I left Boston, I um, spent the summer there and I left in the fall. Moved to Vermont, and I would go to the Boston Public Library. Well, I didn't think to go to my own library at the university. I don't know, but I would go to the Boston <laughs> Public Library. I think because I wanted to participate in the city, city yeah, life, not the university life. And and I go to the poetry section. It's a terrific poetry section, as you might imagine. And um, I just went to the contemporary uh, shelves. I didn't know a lot about it, and sort of thumbed my way through the books. If I saw something I liked, I took it home. Mm-hmm. If I liked that poet, I'd go back and get more of their work. And I went, you know, I didn't go A through Z, but in that summer, I probably went A through L. Yeah. And, um, you know, packing uh, away, as you can imagine, a young person changed, and used the word immersion, changing my sense of immersion to the art of poetry and, and not yet writing. And um, I just had this anxiety that you can't, I couldn't write until I had read more. Yeah. And, you know, you... Lots of people, I think, do it the other way. They just start writing. They need to write. There's a compulsion to write, um, an obsession, an addiction with writing and with expression. For me, it, it was silence. It was the silence that was bursting. I just wanted to have input of the art mm. and, and understand what, where I might fit in. And once I found the place, I just went, I went in that direction. Yeah. And your, and your stint in Vermont seems sort of, Mysterious. What was that all about? <laughs> yeah, well, I wasn't on the run. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, let me ask you this: like, what was uh, kind of uh, the your family? They're seeing you on this trajectory, and then suddenly you kind of, you know, was it not shocking to them that you took this turn and took a literary turn? Did they support you in that? Um, what was that like? Well, well, it's been a long time now uh, since I've. I thought about that. Um, I've always had support from my family. I, you know, there are resistances of two things. I certainly resisted uh, things in my family. It's, it's a healthy family dynamic of function and dysfunction. Yeah. And uh, but I never was. You know, there was. I was never um, rejected for taking on the artistic life. Uh, it's, it probably was not familiar to them. No one in my family had um, decided to live a life. As a, as a writer, especially as a writer of books uh, that are really, um, you know, the art of poetry is part of the gift economy, I think, more than the remunerative economy. Mm-hmm. And so that was um, a mystery to them. It's a kind of a family of business people. And, but no, no you know, <laughs> no hostility. <laughs> I don't know about that there was um, huge support but there was no hostility. <laughs> and I, just, just, I think they just—they didn't quite understand what what a life like that could look like. Yeah. And um, I suppose now I do, since I've had a chance to witness one. <laughs> they um, certainly have, yeah. Yeah, and um, so that's why—that—that's what I think that, as I remember it, that's what it looked like. And I think I just felt misunderstood. Yeah. Um, but I didn't hold it against them. Exactly. Yeah. So tell me about the time in Vermont. You weren't on the run, but, uh, <laughs> but what, what exactly were you up to there? 
Well, you know, some people, you know, finish college and they go to, they travel the world, you know. Yeah. Uh, I took the Thoreau route. I traveled widely in the, in the town, 42 people, Brownsville, Vermont. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I'd never spent a night in Vermont. I traveled through it a few times going up to Montreal. I used to go up to Montreal somewhat frequently, um, to the Olympic facilities there. Uh, they had the Olympics there in 19, the Summer Olympics in 1976. And, um, they had some terrific pools, indoor pools. So it was, um, a six-hour trip to get to Montreal. I knew some divers there, some coaches, and um, I would train. So that's where I could train platform because there wasn't one in Boston. I was in New and um, that was the closest place, really, other than going to New York. And so I was driving to Vermont a lot and just sort of fell for it, fell hard, and decided that when I was going to leave Boston, um, I didn't want to go back to Texas. I didn't know where I wanted to go, and so I thought I will just. I need to go. I need to disappear. Yeah. And and Vermont seemed like a place in which you could disappear. I took a job as a school teacher. I taught um, in a public high school in Bells Falls. Mm. Um, it was a school with no walls, mm. uh, so it was kind of interesting and pedagogical environment. Yeah. And um, I lived in a, a little town with a very close friend, still one of my closest friends, uh, Rick Gifford. There's a couple poems addressed to him, but he's uh, in one of the poems you were asking me about earlier. Mm-hmm. And um, he also uh, was teaching school then, and, and we lived in this super, super small town. We knew the town constable. We knew all the neighbors. We knew the people at the general store, um, uh, and we had 100 acres behind the house that we had no responsibility for, and, you know, age 22 to 24, we we lived freely. Yeah, I was going to say, you kind of chose kind of that rural kind of wilderness in a way over the urban center, but you had just been in Boston. So maybe that's exactly what you needed, but then you end up going to DC after Vermont. Is that right? That's right. And Um, and it's very interesting to me because um, I, I really, I'm always taken with your cultural and political writing and the fact that you're a poet because I, uh, I got my undergraduate in political science just out of like a love for it and an engagement with it. How did that, kind of civic-mindedness kind of develop in you? Was that, did you grow up in a home that was where politics were discussed often, or was this something that you kind of arrived at your own, and then how'd you end up in D.C.? Yeah. Um, well, I did grow up in a home where politics were discussed often. Um, it was a mixed uh, partisan environment. Um, my parents um, were not of the same political persuasion, so there was discussion there. Uh, my grandfather um, was a Republican, a lot of Republicans, uh, an old kind of Republican, mm-hmm. a moderate sort of Southern Republicanism, um, a Lincoln, a Lincoln sort of, a Lincoln-esque kind of Republicanism that hardly mm-hmm. exists in the South, I think, yeah. anymore. And um, some Democrats. But, you know, when I was 16 in 1980, I worked on Ted Kennedy's uh, primary challenge to Jimmy Carter in Texas. I mean, that's how, oh, wow. how, how kind of involved I was from the beginning. Yeah, that's pretty um, great. I, I had a Kennedy, um, passion, uh, having, and actually partly from being from Texas and having strong liberal views. Um, and when Ted Kennedy, uh, ran, I was there. I was, I was all for his candidacy. And I, you know, certainly know how much it destroyed the Democratic chances that year. That's really fascinating because, like, my engagement with politics was really facilitated by 
an accessibility to C-SPAN, to be honest, you know, growing yeah, up. Yeah, interesting. And that your engagement, but it never drove me to, like, really start campaigning. It's really interesting. So that that you had an environment that motivated you enough to get involved in the actual process is pretty incredible. That's right. That's right. And there was no one in my family who was going to vote for Ted Kennedy against Jimmy Carter in the Texas primary in 1980. But no one in my family would ever stop me from being enthusiastic about it. And yeah. the, the, I was encouraged to have my own um, political opinions and to act on them. And I think that's where the kind of roots of this civic, um, engaging the civic world uh, began. I worked on campaigns in Boston. Um, and uh, it wasn't that I had any political genius. I remember in 1984, living in Boston, about a day or two days before the um, election, and you can, you can look this up, uh, Walter Mondale showed up in Boston hmm. and gave a big speech. Ted Kennedy was there. Uh, big speech out on the, in the <clears throat> downtown of Boston at the courthouse. Uh, thousands and thousands of people there. And I remember walking back uh, with a friend, couple of whom, a couple of whom are in the book, and uh, they were all excited, and they were thinking we're going to take this election. And, and I remember thinking, why is Walter Mondale in Boston today? <laughs> exactly. And, 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 I, and I said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, he's got Boston. Yeah. <laughs> why would he show up here? Why isn't he in, in Michigan or Ohio <laughs> or, or, you know, whatever the battleground state was of the era? Yeah. And uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, really? Why is he here? <laughs> I said, I think that's called shoring up your vote. Because yeah. <laughs> this isn't going to go well. Yeah. Um, and so let me ask you: when you uh, you got to DC, you were like uh, really engaged. So where was? It's just I'm really interested in the intersection of your writing as far as poetry, but then you know your your you know your generous production of prose at the same time. I was wondering how those two were kind of not uh, not battling for your attention, but how did those two kind of play out in kind of your daily life and your daily habits as a writer? Were you writing prose in between kind of those moments when poetry struck you or, or do, what was the kind of dynamic there? Well, I've um, always, I think, liked the, you know, idea of the poet critic mm-hmm. or uh, the poet reviewer, probably more in my case. Yeah. Um, uh, someone like Randall Jarrell was a kind of model for me. Um, James Dickey was a model, uh, Robert Penn Warren, um, sort of a model for me of, of poets who were active in both poetry and prose and the prose about the art. Yeah. And, and I also feel that, you know, I think that's at a pragmatic functional level. At a more intrinsic, in a more intrinsic realm, for me, especially early on, the prose writing was a way to stave off the silence. That in between poems, I found the the silences yeah. um, overbearing, overwhelming, and and prose was a way not only to um, fill the void um, with some other kind of nutrition. Uh, but also to, especially when I was younger, and maybe it's, it's probably still the same now, especially with the poetry wire column. Yeah. Um, the reviewing was a way to assert as much as I thought I could, not that I thought I could influence anything, but, you know, the ambition to assert what I thought were 
ideas that belong in conversation about poetry. Yes. That I felt were missing. And, you know, my first reviews were when I was in Washington, D.C. I was, um, had read a review in the Washington Post book world, doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. It was part of the paper. It was a big spread. It was probably 16 to 20 pages of fold out. And, um, there was a review that started and of poetry I read and the review, you know, began something to the effect, uh, John, like, Poetry is difficult. Everyone knows that poetry is hard to read. Everyone knows that no one reads poetry. It's yeah. amazing that anyone even publishes poetry. <laughs> it's a tiny part of literary art. And that whole stance yeah. started the review. And then it finally got around to the review. And I don't remember the book or anything anymore. And I just, you know, had a <laughs> my head against the wall feeling. Yeah. And so I wrote to, uh, you know, I just leapt into action. And maybe this is where the civic, you know, meets the literary. Yeah. Left in the action, I wrote to Michael Durda, who was uh, one of the editors, and I said, this is, this, you know, this, uh, this aggression cannot stand, man. I mean, you yeah. can't have a poetry review start this way. You would never let a book about <laughs> politics start that way. You would never, and I quit and I, and I, you know, did a parody. And I said, Politics is very difficult. Everyone knows that politics is a place where things don't get done. Yeah. Politics can ruin your life. Nobody wants to get in politics. <laughs> you know, and I, you would never do that. You would start by reviewing the book. So I, I sent a review of the book, knowing he wouldn't obviously publish it. <laughs> saying, here's what a review of poetry can look like. Yeah. And, uh, you know, phone rang. And uh, he says, all right, I'll give you a shot, kid. And um, he signed some books and um, the only question was, are you not, are you married to any of these people? <laughs> <laughs> that's and I, really great. You know, and, and that's kind of where it got going. Yeah, it's really great. The review is definitely, I, I like how you definitely said that it was great to fill up those silences. I, uh, that took me a long time to figure out, but when I started writing reviews, it just, I, discovered that I loved it for one, that reason I didn't feel so terrified between the poems, but you're right. It is also kind of a space to crystallize your own ideas about poetry, to bump your own values up against somebody else's work. And, Mm -hmm. and it, and I like reviews and you do this as well as like to segue out a little from let the poems kind of inspire a larger conversation and then to kind of retract back to those poems and talk about them instead of kind of like a straight summarizing or this, po- you know, this book of poems. Great. See you later. So, uh, yeah. Or the, or the, con- or the conversation about poems is about, um, the, uh, interior architecture, you know, that it's about someone who thinks this way or perceives that way or right. fashions a, a metaphor this way. And and then what's not discussed is what's the subject of the book, you know, yeah. the form, the content, the subject, the manner. Those are all I think integrated. And often enough times, uh, a reviewer tends to pick one or the other, and 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 the ones I, I like the least tend to only focus on formalities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no structures. Yeah. yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, and so in DC, what? You didn't stay there extremely, you know, long. What was your time like there? Was it, you know, because after there, you ended up busting a move, like, across the country, right? That's right. That's right. You know, I, I moved so that's to... That's um, catapult. 
I know, I know. I returned to the the left, right? Um, I uh, my whole time on the East Coast, from you know between Texas and then later California, it was about ten years. Yeah, through college, I came to BC. Um, 87, 88, that era. Um, I actually arrived, I mean, I can date it. I arrived the day that, um, Oliver North began his testimony in the Grand Contra hearings. I went down to those hearings and watched them. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, that was pretty exciting. <laughs> the, um, it's strange and, I mean, exciting for people who care about that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> and the, and then I stayed until 93. So I was there, you know, five, six years. Um, and a pretty uh, important stretch of years for me as a writer. Uh, I went to graduate school. I began teaching in universities. I um, began um, you know, writing the poems that were you know, comprised my first book. Um, began meeting a lot of poets. You know, it's just a period of poetry. That's really where the couple of years of gestation in Vermont, when I was on my own, writing on my own, no community around. Um, I mean, no literary community to speak of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly wasn't, didn't know what, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know any other poets. Um, I was just trying to learn how to write on my own and, and trying to learn whether or not that was the direction I wanted to go in. By the time I arrived in DC, I knew it was. Yeah. And so I leapt into the, the literary world fully. Um, I was, uh, married then. I had a son there. Um, and then I ended up leaving to um, go to Stanford. I, I got lucky and fortunate to get a stagnant fellowship. Yeah, that was a pretty fruitful time for you, right? Highly. Yeah. That was high yield, high yield time. Yeah. And uh, that pretty much solidified you on the West Coast, you think? Um, I didn't expect to be on the West Coast. Um, my uh, assumption was, um, that I would go out to California for a couple of years and then probably wind up back. It's not in DC, which is a city I love. Um, I had thoughts of going back to Boston. I, I, I was resisting going to New York. I, I, have, I have two very strong feelings about New York and they're identical. One is when I arrive in New York to visit, I always think, always think, God, I'm so glad to be in New York. And when I leave, whether it's a day later or an hour later or five days later, I always think, I'm so glad to be leaving you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I get, a, so, I get a sense in your writing even and, and even in your kind of biography that you do, there is like these kind of competing impulses towards uh, the urban and the wilderness. Do you think the West Coast is kind of a nice equilibrium between those things? I guess so, yeah. Um, or you know, I live in the maybe. city here yeah. in Portland. I live in you know, the city of Portland. Um, I'm about on the east side of the east side of the Willamette River here, in the, on the west side of downtown. Um, I'm about 40 blocks from downtown. I can walk down there, and mm-hmm. I don't know half an hour. I can get myself downtown by foot. Um, you know, if I drive, I'm downtown in five minutes. Yeah. Um, so it's an urban. It's a it's a compact city in that way. Um, but I also have um, a, a small cabin uh, out in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest. It's a two-room cabin. It has no running water. It has the outhouse. It has a, it's heated by a wood stove oh, um, that I um, went and bought with a few friends and 
or maybe 15 years ago. And I don't go out there as much as uh, I used to. Yeah. Um, kids are younger. You go, you know, they'll more often. But um, it's there, and uh, it's a good place to go and read. Yeah. You know, just want to get away, clear your mind from old growth forest. So that's about an hour and a quarter from here, and I get out there a few times a year now, not as much as I as I used to. Yeah. So it is a it is a good mix in that way. Yeah, I wanted to ask you. Um, in around 2005, I think it was, you were you became editor of Poetry Northwest. I was wondering if you could mm-hmm. talk a little about that experience. I mean, that magazine is is one of the oldest and most distinguished. Uh, what was your time like there? Yeah, it's a storied uh, magazine for sure, and and it's placed in uh, American letters uh, and in Northwest letters, especially in enormous, I think. Um, well, kind of like the um, way I got into reviewing, uh, you know, you, we all got the news from the longtime editor there, David Wagner, that he was shutting the doors of the magazine. Yeah. It, it, it shut quite abruptly. And, you know, David would make, you know, a please for years in the, in the back of the magazine for money. <laughs> and um, and uh, this wasn't, I hadn't been out here that long, I guess. This was probably late 90s or maybe early 2000s. Yeah. The magazine shut down. I want to say, thinking about it, and then maybe 2001, 2002. And um, I um, had started um, working with Linda Beards, who mm-hmm. was uh, my editor at the University of Washington Press. That's the press that's published uh, my last three books. Yeah. And um, she teaches at the University of Washington. She knows Wagner. I didn't know David Wagner. I still really don't know him. And um, I just asked what's going on, and I got a little bit of the, the background. Uh, and I said, you know, that magazine really should not fold. There's no reason for that. There's a way to make it work, surely. And that started a sequence of conversations in which I was um, um, encouraged to and uh, kind of stepped into the role of editor, of being editor. And um, I thought as a way to bring Poetry Northwest, the magazine, into a new century and, and change it and, and act as a midwife. Yeah. And try to get it back on, you know, rebirth the baby, get it going again, and then try to find a permanent home for it. Yeah. That could fund it. And, um, I edited it for five years. It was, um, you know, I kept saying, especially in the early days of that, I never wanted to be an editor. <laughs> <laughs> I never wanted to be an editor. Right. I <laughs> uh, you know my, my idea of editors, and I want to get myself in trouble, but having been one, I think, uh, it, it is, it certainly is, um, Accurate description of myself. I always quoted editors. The, the synonym for editor was idiot, <laughs> and I certainly was the biggest one, I'm sure, when I edited Poetry Northwest. Uh, but I learned a ton. I met a lot of people. Had a great staff, fantastic staff, and um, was able to hand it off uh, to every college, um, which is north of Seattle. So I sent it back to Seattle in better shape than it came in. And uh, the new editor, Kevin Kraft. Um, mm-hmm. who I'd known a very long time that, uh, we lived in DC together. Um, he's done a fantastic job. The last issue they did is the best one I've ever seen. He's yeah. Doing a great job. No, it's great. And tell us a little about, uh, because I'm so anxious to get to your poetry, but, uh, tell us, oh, I almost want to say real quick, but it might be impossible to, but, can you tell any listener that might not know anything about the Attic Institute? Can you give us a, a rundown of it? Sure, sure. Um, 
The Attic Institute is a literary studio. I think of it as kind of a think tank for writers. Um, it's a private school where uh, writers primarily in Portland, in the Portland area, come. They take um, traditional workshops in fiction and nonfiction, memoir, uh, personal essay, poetry, poetics. Um, we have program part the classes or the the learning environment goes from a two hour class that meets us once to one off to a year long program. Yeah. And uh so we try to we've tried to correct something, at least there something I think has needed to be corrected, is to create a studio environment so that if you show up to take a workshop, you know, once we can hopefully, if you have the ambition, help you throughout your writing life. So you can come in and take a few classes and learn, you know, how to write short stories better. Mm-hmm. And then as you gain ambition and and control and decide more what you want to do with your writing, we have a program that's for five months for writing pros and you can jump into that and work on that program. And if you feel like now you have a project going or a manuscript, then we have a program that's a year long. You can jump into that. Well, some of those people end up being teaching fellows later on, um, especially after they've published something. And so we've had people who have shown up. I really want to turn my life in this direction. And now there are people teaching uh, other students. You know, as and, you're um, describing this, I can't help but think of the way you described uh, when you were coaching swimmers that one, trust and relationship building are at the bedrock of it. And that too, that you're helping them, uh, develop through like an entire arc of their lives that you're bringing that same model to the attic. And it's a pretty extraordinary, uh, project that you've been at for so long. And I wanted to ask you because, you know, different poets kind of have different engagements, whether it's like, oh, some are editors, um, some do this, but it seems particularly for you that in addition just to your writing that, you you're you got the the attic institute all these other things kind of swirling around your act of writing um you know and it i think some might think like how do you ever find the time or energy it's like but i'm wondering if the the more you increase your engagement in the literary culture the more energy you have to participate in it and actually even write more in it in a way how have you kind of managed your time and energy well, I don't sleep that much. <laughs> no, I sleep. I was going to say, like, um, maybe you don't sleep. <laughs> yeah. I, I am a, um, I, I, I do have, um, I'll be first in line when they have human cloning. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Uh, I need a couple more of me just to get all the stuff done. Well, I was going to say, um, maybe you've learned the art of delegating a little. <laughs> I'm a good delegator. I am. Yeah. Um, and I also say yes a lot. Yeah. Uh, I tried to, I tried to, um, offload a few things in the last couple of years, um, that I know either have lost interest in, you mm-hmm. know, at the same level or I just need to clear the decks. Yeah. Um, you know, I, um, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I do think you're right. I, or I do think I agree that. Uh, being not busy, there's no there's no virtue in being busy, but uh, being active, engaged, yeah. that they do feed things. I didn't think that was true when I was younger. I thought, uh, and maybe I wasn't in a position um, artistically to do that. 
I thought I had to clear the deck and write poems and, um, and maybe a little bit of prose, as I say, to kind of, you know, uh, help get through the, the silent spots. Yeah. But, um, I do feel more a little bit like, um, at this stage, like, uh, say Rodin, you know, who was always had several things going at once, never ran out of ideas, was constantly working and, um, just engaged. Now, I certainly am at a point now where I wouldn't mind getting rid of a few of the assignments yeah. that I've taken on. Uh, I started a new book and I would just like to carve out that bigger space for the writing. Sure. Um, and sometimes, you know, the wolf's at the door and you just have to keep doing stuff. Yeah. And I mean, and I think you get to a point too where you're like, you know, my level of stewardship of the art has been vigorous. And <laughs> at some point, yeah, you do. Else can do it now. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You know, there's a good, I have a, a funny story about that. When I took over Poetry Northwest, one of the first calls I made was to Robert Bly. And I really wanted Robert Bly to write an essay, um, reassessing an essay he had written about 25 years earlier. He wrote an essay called A Wrong Turning in American Poetry, uh-huh. in which, um, he chastised, I guess, the academic poets and the, and the beat poets. Yeah. Uh, for, um, being disengaged with the, the interior, the interior of consciousness. And that he predicted a future in which uh, American poetry would be more sensual, more of the body, more of the flesh, and uh, more of the kind of um, um, relatable spirit from human being to human being. Yeah. And uh, any fair reading of American poetry can tell you that it did not go in that direction. At all. <laughs> um, especially in today, and you know, <clears throat> you know, the kind of dominant mode at the moment is kind of a affectless. Uh, um, disembodied, really, kind of uh, sound. And yeah. so I wanted him to reassess and, uh, and <laughs> be provocative and say, I had it wrong, my prediction was wrong, <laughs> or that there's the wrong turning, kept turning in the wrong direction, or, or to say, you know what, I, I had it wrong. This is good, whatever is happening now, I mean, what happens to And, uh, Robert Bly said, I want to write that. And I sort of pressed him on it. And, Come on, this would be great. It'd be, you know, you never see this. You never see a critic come back and do a big piece and, and reassess. He says, "Yeah, writing poetics is a young man's game." Huh. And uh, so I think you're right. Uh, at some point, you just have to say, "It's enough." Yeah. You know, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna write my write poems and and try to think try to think through the poems. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about your uh, the poetry wire at the Rompus. That has been. Undoubtedly a success, I think, and it seems like you really enjoy it. Um, um, where, where are you? What's your thinking on that? Uh, now you've been doing it for a little while now. Um, about a year and a half. Uh, I'm really grateful to my editor there, Brian Spears, mm-hmm. um, and all the editors throughout the book. Brian's the one I work with directly. Um, you know, I was <clears throat> um, interested in a little real estate where I could engage the art in some fashion and um for a while I was doing um I think the idea at first was to try to write them kinda of like um Andrew Sullivan writes his blog on politics right. and culture. And you know, I just don't have as you just described, I don't have the life or luxury to do it that frequently. Yeah. Um I can write prose fast. I certainly learned to write it fast when I was writing for Politico. Um but I just couldn't keep up at that pace. And I tried to go weekly and then, you know, by last spring, I just had to throw on the towel and say, I'm going to sign off. It's just 
you know, I can't just do this. Definitely. And so now it sort of has settled into a routine that feels about bi-weekly. Yeah. You know, not bi-weekly, bi-monthly. Um, a couple times a month. And I, I have found that by doing it a little less frequently, I think the um, readership is a little more um, comfortable with that routine, that pace. Yeah. I think when they were coming out all the time, you just thought, oh, well, there goes, you know, there goes Dave again. Right. I don't have time to read, I don't have time to read another 5,000 words. Um, <laughs> by, you know, Mr. Voluble. Uh, <laughs> and it has been interesting. There have been some that have been, you know, more controversial than others, you know, being a little provocative is okay. Um, I've tried to be very positive. I've tried to say things about the art. And try to cogent about them um, as best I can. I've written a few parodies that are just a blast to write. And, um, <laughs> I've seen those, yeah. Yeah, those are really fun. And, uh, and and just to you know remind, I think for those who read that, so when you're in the middle of the world of poetry, you feel like it's the whole planet. <laughs> Everything is you know is poetry. Um, and it's something called the poetry planet. Okay. And then, but if you come off the planet, even a little bit out into the space of the rest of the world, yeah. and you turn around and look back, it's hard to find the poetry planet. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it's connected to all the other planets in the system. Yeah. And and while you can, you know, make fun of our self-absorption and our lack of, you know, mass influence at the same time. It's an interesting kind of juxtaposition. Uh, I do think we are connected to the rest of the culture if we're able to identify those connections. Yeah. And we're, we're connected by rethinking the ways in which language can assess the inner life and, and share experience. We're connected in a way that to try to talk about political things. I mean, that, I mean, not partisanship, but sort of social relationships, yeah. self-governing relationships in a language which is not cliche or televisable or repeatable, you know, a fresh original language. Um, we're connected to the culture by in the way in which we try to um, think by feeling and um, try to create new, new forms to um, heighten uh, everyday speech and to reuse uh, old forms, renew old forms so that we feel that our current idiomatic speech is connected to the past and to the future, hopefully. I think if we're not trying to write poems that are directed toward the future, I don't know why we're trying to write poems. And I, you know, try in the poetry wire poem to somehow think about those things. That's kind of the, those are the filters through which I am trying to look at poetry right now. Yeah, I think, I think it's been very successful. And I think uh, the civility you kind of bring to the conversation, I mean, I could, I could see where others who feel strongly one way or another about particular issues on the poetry planet don't want to pull their punches. And it never feels like you're pulling your punches, but that you're, you're equitable. And I don't know, you're able to kind of step away. Like your, your latest one, I think was kind of uh, weighing and considering and kind of commenting on, you know, the recent Boston review stuff, the conceptual stuff versus the lyric stuff. And I thought you, uh, you know, you get a sense of where kind of like your feelings on it are, but you, you're always kind of equitable and generous about the overall discussion. And, uh, you know, I didn't even intend to talk about that at all, but it is an 
interesting debate, and I only say this, it, it seems that the debate is, and I like, and you always kind of enlarge the conversation by like seeing what else is entangled in that debate what about the lyric or conceptualism or whatever. But it does seem that it is, that those are just kind of representative ideas of some broader, broader, uh, kind of friction in intellectual history right now that, that there's two impulses in the culture. And for some reason, I feel like the, the conceptual and the lyrical impulses, whatever these people are arguing about exactly seem to be arguing about something much grander than two poetic styles in a way. Um, but I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get uh, yeah. into it, but yeah, no, I do have a lot of thoughts on that, and 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 I'm not sure at the moment how form well form they are. You know, um, I think that one of the things we all struggle with when we're so fully participating in an art is self validation. And especially in an art, well, I think this is probably true of any art, and maybe of any industry, um, uh, self-validation. And that the thing that one is working on, or the thing that one has taste for reading, or the fellow travelers that, whose work you admire and, and have, that have influenced you, or that you're supporting by, you know, distributing it as an editor or yeah. A publisher, and so on, and, or reviewing it, and so on. All those things, you you want to give them primacy, and by giving them primacy, you know, as we used to say in the county in Texas I'm from, any any man can burn down a barn. Yeah. And the easiest thing to do is to tear down a thing you don't think should be primary, especially if it's a little bit of, um, we call it a patricide to go with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that stance of wanting to both give birth to an idea and destroy another idea <laughs> is very natural, right? Yeah. And I don't excuse myself from it. I certainly have participated fully in, in the poetry wars in that sense. Yeah. I, on the other hand, don't feel there's a dime's worth of difference between free verse and formal verse. Sure. That it's all, it's all about creating forms. Yeah, and I don't feel that um, uh, verse that uh, uses is, is written in lines or written in prose is really that's not really that interesting to me in the end. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's about sensibility and about how you connect to other people right. uh, as any kind of uh, any kind of artistic expression is. And on that continuum, I think there are people who make art, make great poems who. They don't care about that, and that's fine. It's their prerogative. They can write whatever poems they want. That's that's the sure. premise. But they feel like I'm trying to write poems that do something new for poetry. Readers will come around, and well, I don't know if readers will come around, but I'm going to do what I'm doing, and maybe they will come around. I mean, this right. is certainly the argument um, I've heard, and I respect it that um, Don Fair makes about Poetry Magazine uh, recently. I think he might have made it in your interview, mm-hmm. in which he said, you know. Uh, the love poem that Geoffrey Prufrock was published in, in poetry and it was reviled. Right. Look how influential it became. It's not, as he was saying, I think his job as an editor to decide should this influence or not influence, the right. article will figure that out. And I think that's a, that's, there's some wisdom in that. And, and so in the end, I just feel like we're all trying to make the art of poetry. 
And if I make the art of poetry, as I was saying in that last piece, that's sort of the country-western variety, I'm not out to destroy the opera variety. <laughs> right. And, and vice versa. And so I somehow think that there's got to be another way, and this is where my ideas get really unformed, ill-formed. Right. Uh, to talk about poetry in different ways, you know, that, that aren't, the old ways just don't do anymore. I think you're and right. And try yeah. to, try to find ways to think about it in terms of the rest of the culture. So if you have on the one hand, you know, um, what do you do with something like postmodern poetry that at one time was an outsider art and now is an insider art? And where, and but still believes it's an outsider art. And so how do you think about its impact when it's no longer um, seen by the rest of the culture the way it sees itself? Hmm. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, those are a lot of equations to, to add up. Yeah. Um, so what's on the outside now? Well, hmm. on the outside now is direct expression, uh, strong feeling, um, sentimentality. Right. And, and what's and so that's where the culture is. Yeah. No, I think these are, I think they're just, they, I always feel, I like that you're calling for a different way to talk about those things. And I'm starting, cause I've been thinking about it lately, just, I'm starting to think that those positions that people are defending, they're, they're defending or at least kind of exploring what it means just to kind of be, you know, just a, an individual. And it seems that one, one side wants to, you know, if the culture's challenge in a way is that one's suffering is meaningless, <laughs> that there's other impulses that say it has meaning. And, and I don't know, I'm just still, untangling these things but uh yeah. but you're definitely well, bringing a lot of clarity i think to the debate and it was funny in the last thing you know you, you did a good job i think validating that that piece and boston review was like well written except that there was passages that would mean nothing to your friend at the grocery store you know like and i think that goes back to your point about what does it mean for a reader at the end of the day well, and there are different readers, and they bring different um, yeah. intentions to the reading, too. You know, the readers of the piece that Timothy Donnelly curated, that was for a very select kind of cultural consumer. Right. Um, in particular, those that are, you know, <clears throat> who have strong feelings about the Calvetian piece to begin with. Right. Um, I, I, you know, it's a big country. <laughs> we have so many niches in in everything, yeah. and we have so many niches in poetry. Yeah, and it seems like I should be able to, you know, look at a Norman Rockwell and a Jackson Pollock and find commonality between them. Right. Even though I know that they're totally different and I can't look at them the same way. I can't right. respond. They're not asking me to look at them the same way. But I don't feel like in any way can, um, the Pollock is in opposition to the Rockwell. Right. There are, the, the analogy I was trying to think through is they're on different places on the, on the radio dial. Right. You know, so to speak. I don't think we have a radio dial anymore, but, <laughs> um, 
you know what I mean? And that, yeah. that's, that's how it should be, you know? And, and we need, I don't know if it's just a matter of calling for more enthusiasm right. for the art and not just such selective enthusiasm. Yeah. And I think too, people, and we're, and we're, we got to move off from this, but I think that the, you made a good point that it's a big country and that there's actually plenty of room at the poetry table for all of these styles, you know, and all of these impulses sure. and all these dispositions and all these temperaments. And yet I think that in a way causes great anxiety that no, we can't have everyone at the table, you know? Like, sure. That's like, right. There has to be like, negotiation. We have to have, you know, if you're going to be at the table, it's got to get a trade land for peace. Yeah. No, just, <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. What happens when we live in a universe that's large enough to encompass all of our truths simultaneously without one right. eclipsing the other one? And that's right. And then we're just going to bicker the whole time. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And that does not change the, change my taste. Precisely. You know, yeah. I'd much rather sit down and read. I'll just go out of the country. I would rather sit down and read Chazal Miłosz mm-hmm. than with Wallace and Borska. Right. And my taste is more for his art and his political, his style of political engagement and lyricism, high lyricism of his art, than her style of um, intricate miniatures. Yeah. And and this. But that's what she does. I recognize that, and I think she does it obviously extremely well, as Dickinson did. So I'm, you know, my taste is more on the Britain side. Yeah. And to go back to our country, you know, sort of the, the cliché divide. And yet, I read Dickinson often. Right. I think she's phenomenal. There's, she has so much to provide me with in terms of pleasure, insight, and etc. But I don't. <clears throat> You know, I think it's, it may have, maybe has taken some time even, uh, for me to be able to embrace as much as I can. I think, uh, you know, when I was younger, I was, there was no way. There's yeah. No way I can run it. No, I think that's right. And I, and I like that you bring up individual taste because I think, um, you know, if we gotten to a point in our understanding of the world and reality that individual taste, if that's our last bastion of, judgment uh i think that must be and the big table of poetry a room for everybody that's a that's a destructive force that's got to be a hard position to put people in you know <laughs> so uh yeah, why would you i mean why would you want to put them in i mean i'll give you one example i, I know you want to move on but some years ago in a in a uh poetry uh, workshop i taught at the attic institute I um we I assigned uh, it was about a twelve week course and 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 I assigned a couple books to read during the course so you know of uh, poets and I would say the majority of the poets in that <clears throat> workshop wrote poems of the I don't mean this in any negative way but just to try to characterize uh, a lot of poems that seem to have been influenced by William Stafford Gary Snyder Richard Hugo mm-hmm. William Matthews. Um, James Wright. Yeah. I mean, some of the men and some of the women, Linda Gregg, um, uh, Jane Hirschfield. Yeah. I'm into that kind of sensual, um, Galway Canal esque art. Exactly. And, um, I assigned the collected poems to Amy Clampett. <laughs> and, uh, nice. you would have thought, 
I brought in an <laughs> alien figure. Right. And I just decided I am, you know, I just, I don't like to lose. And I'm just not going to lose this, this yeah. conversation. You have to see that Andy Clampett is phenomenal. Now, you may not like him reading that kind of Baroque, intricate, yeah. um, um, what do you call it, uh, DNA surrounded kind of literary art. Yeah. But she's phenomenal. That she can think through and see images and really look closely. Like, there's a lot to be A, learned, and B, enjoyed. And they just weren't ready. They didn't want to see it they, because it did not tap into what they were most influenced by as writers of poems. But right. they wanted to believe that poems should be this thing. Now, they should write the poems that they think poems should be. Yeah. But they shouldn't also, and I had on this make all kinds of statements, shouldn't <laughs> also reject Amy Clampett. Absolutely. Who is a phenomenal poet um, of intricacy. And uh, and she's not a poet I read a lot. I just thought this is this would be good medicine. Yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah, I remember being uh uh Richard Howard uh when I was with him mm-hmm. that he advocated her work greatly and I had never read it with any seriousness and yeah, it, it was tough at first. But uh Yeah one finds their way in it. All right. But aside from all those other poets, let's talk about your work. Tell me, um, without going, you know, without us, you know, getting lost in every book of, uh, poems you've published, but how do you see charming gardeners in relation to your previous books? Uh, you know, yeah. it, it's interesting because I always kind of harken back to this review that William Logan wrote of the village life by, um, Louise Glick. And he said, you know, he was kind of like shocked and really like that she like kind of busted out of the style uh, in that book. And that poets typically by their second or third book have kind of found their idiom in there. So I'm wondering how you how you situate Charming Gardeners in with the kind of arc of uh, your progression as a poet. Sure. Um, that's a great question. You know, it's just a. Total coincidence, I just uh, went to a reading a couple nights ago um, of Louise Gluck. Oh, no way. And, and um, she said something which I completely resonated with me in terms of my own writing. Um, she read from her, it's not a collected poems, but her the collection of the poems she's written so far. Yeah, that big tune, right? First. Yeah. Yeah, the one with the, the orange cover. Yes. And um, so she decided to do kind of a, you know, Greatest hits, a couple book, couple of poems from almost every book. Yeah, and uh, you know to have Louise Gluck stand up there and read to you Mock Orange. Uh, <laughs> oh I thought, my gosh! Oh, great, this is Louise Gluck reading Mock Orange. Yeah, great. I'm glad I showed up. <laughs> uh, and I've seen her read, I bet half a dozen times over the years. And um, very warm, very gracious reading, very open. And uh, during the question and answer, there were, she only took a couple of questions, and one of them was very similar to the question you just asked. Um, uh, and she said that, you know, after every book, she said her new books begin with a diagnostic process. I thought was a terrific phrase, hmm. a diagnostic process in which she goes back and looks at the last book to see what it is she's done and what she hasn't done. Hmm. There's a bit of self-diagnosis going on. Yeah. And then looks to see where she might move next on, on account of what those answers are. And I certainly have felt a very similar kind of um, attitude toward my uh, writing. 
Um, I've always liked, you know, the idea of the artist or the poet who has, it's called them periods, you know, the Picasso's, say, blue period and yeah. his white period and his sculpture period. That That's enticing to me. Um, and maybe it just relates to my restlessness or, you know, if we can tie it back to the, to the diving, you know, I'm a fast twitch athlete. Maybe I'm a fast twitch yeah. writer. And I, you know, I got to, I can do one thing and I have to rest. Yeah. And, and so I've tried to have allegiance to that idea. And my, and, and therefore I have actually manuscripts that I did not publish in between. Um, some of the books I have because I kind of gave up on them or rejected them or decided it wasn't, it wasn't working. I lost interest. Yeah. And my first book, Shattering Air, very much an unconscious book. Um, some poems in there I really still am quite fond of. And, um, I, uh, was trying to find my way. I was trying to write poems, uh, through memory. Uh, I was trying to write autobiographically. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to find a way to uh, locate meaning between things. Yeah. Between, mostly between the self and everything else. Yeah. Um, the natural world. Um, by the time I, then I wrote another manuscript that I, I got rid of. And by the time I got to Wild Civility, which is my second book, I had become um, convinced <laughs> in my own mind that to, to, you know, puff it up a little, American poetry's diction had gotten too small, too narrow. Mm-hmm. And that was there, I was asking myself, and my own, and I was, my work seemed representative of that to me. Um, a victim of it. Um, is, was there a way in which I could, as one poet, try to widen the diction range of a poem? Right. And so I just began to try to gather as much diverse kind of diction and see how much I could get into a single poem <laughs> and still have some something sustain it. Yeah. And and I created two elements to sustain I, I tried to. One was I wrote dramatic monologues so that I had a voice for each one um that was identifiably that connected everything. And the other was I worked in a, a single form. Mm-hmm. Poems which are nine lines long, and which I, for my own sake, call American Sonnets. So I sort of follow sonnet format, but they're different line lengths, yeah. different stands of patterns, and those were the those were the anchoring factors yeah. around which I could try to make the language go as wide across the continuum, left to right, uh, vertical and vertically as, as possible. And some of those poems, I think, are are really fascinating in that way. And others, you just think, who speaks like this? <laughs> <laughs> like, they are not natural. That's just, they were highly, they were really highly artifice. Yeah. Um, and then I uh, had another manuscript in there, which I put away. And then I wrote um, the Book of Men and Women. And the Book of Men and Women, I think, makes a shift, at least as I see it, from this highly expressionistic kind of poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought the poems of possibility, I thought of them as being kind of Jackson Pollock-esque in their yeah. chaos of language. And moving from that in the direction of um, uh, more autobiography, kind of national autobiography, more direct expression, more poems which were anchored to an occasion mm-hmm. rather than to um, a voice. 
and in a form and poems which were trying to express um, something that could connect to other people in terms of in that book, you know, um, the uh, disillusion of one relationship and the beginning of another. Mm. By the time I got to, you know, this new book, Charming Gardeners, um, I was fully reinvested in writing autobiographically. Yeah. And I was traveling a ton and I was, uh, had gone through a difficult part of my life, challenging part of my life. Uh, personally, hmm. and um, wanted to connect to people who are close to me, either in real life, in political life, poetry life, whatever. Uh, and so I just began writing um, letters and poems. <laughs> yeah, it's really a remarkable collection. It's so funny that you, well, not funny, but that you said that the poems in many ways came out of uh, a challenging time because the first thing I kind of took away from these letters to the people you knew was that they're in a way I could feel at their heart a, a terrible ache and like loneliness to them and that the loneliness is predicated on the fact that you're you're writing to these individuals because they're not present you know? yeah. and that they're absent and I was just like, I didn't see that or f like, I didn't real even just think of that like very simple fact of why one writes a letter while I'm reading these poems. And then I went, Oh my God, there's this gigantic absence in the book. It's the absence of all these people. Yeah. And that yeah. loneliness came out of nowhere and like hit me like a ton of bricks to suddenly realize that. And the, the poems became, uh, that just brought uh just it kind of just uh created an emotional frame for those poems that on my first couple of readings didn't didn't exist um and the and the book travels <laughs> a lot and i was the amount of travel in the book made me really think about you as an individual in your personal life in a sense you're shuttling around this country. People are absent and that you're turning to this form in the poems are, are generous in length. They're generous in voice. Uh, you know, when this thing was finally published and you kind of had a chance to look at it, you know, how did you feel about, how did you feel about these poems once they, you saw them and finally collected into a book? Yeah. Well, you keep talking. Uh, I love listening to you talk about them. Uh, um, oh, I have a lot to say about them, for sure. <laughs> um, what can I say to answer that? Um, the I I learned a couple things. Yeah, I well, learned I was a couple things. Say, you don't even have to speak yeah. to it, but I'm I'm I think, or you can at least say this: the writing the letters to the friends. I think you made an extremely amazing choice that you thrived in that form and that you flourished and that, I mean, you know, why don't we just crack the book open and hear one of these things and start talking about them? Um, you know, yeah, the copy was, I have, I don't know if the page numbers are still correct. Um, but the poem, um, to appear if I'm saying his, the name the name correctly. 
Yeah. Um, Is there anything you want to say about this poem before you read it? So this poem to uh, W.S. DiPiero, um, whose first CBS is Stanford Simone. Simone DiPiero, terrific poet. Just a fantastic poet. He's from Philadelphia, the south side of Philadelphia. And has lived in San Francisco for decades now. He taught at Stanford for a long time. He was my teacher there for the couple of years I was there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, I say teacher. I learned a lot from him, but his manner of teaching is to befriend. And mm-hmm. so he's become a, um, a good kind of old friend. And, um, we, you know, in touch off and on through the, through the years. And, and I was, um, in this little town in, uh, Wasco County, Oregon, in this kind of boarding house. Mm-hmm. Little boarding house. Um, and I went there just to write. And, um, something about, in, in all these poems, sometimes the place name, uh, would, uh, indicate to me who the recipient might be. Right. Of the letter. And, um, trying to, to make that a interior connection that, that has no meaning other than to me. Uh, and, and probably have no meaning. It just was a way of thinking about who might be the next recipient and letting that be somewhat arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And then trying to find out how to make it intimate. Um, so the town's called Dufer and you know, his name is D. Piero, and, and, and that's where the thing started. And then I just began writing by, as uh, some of these began by, um, just giving him, uh, the recipient a sense of my mood. Like you do in letters. I read a lot of letters, you know, as a younger person and mm-hmm. certainly had, you know, what you would think of as literary correspondences with fellow writers. Right. That all has kind of slipped away in the, um, in the email age. And, um, I was just trying to, <clears throat> I guess, reclaim some of that or re-enjoy that. Mm. Um, I think I could read this story. Is that what we're, we're heading? You'd like me to do? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I'm trying to think if there's any other thing I would say. Well, Super Oregon is about uh, almost 200 miles from the Pacific Ocean. Mm. And I mentioned another town here uh, called Astoria, which is um, one of the oldest cities in the the West. Um, It's where the Columbia River um, falls into the Pacific Ocean. It's the estuary. And it's where um, the Corps of Discovery um, wintered when they finally made, when they finally reached the, the Pacific Ocean. Hmm. To DPR from Dufer. I descended toward the county line of a haunted mood. And I'm ashamed to have forgotten so many customs as you said I might that night in San Francisco when the scrub jays in the window clapped like incantations and barbarian prayers, clapped and poured glory onto a dozen universal ideas that had traveled from Podunk to Capital City and back. Like this bypassable high desert grassy town too, with its post-pioneer turn-of-the-century hotel giving us rooms for the night. In 1907, the town pharmacist built this brick boarding house 45 years after the village held its first church meeting. The mail didn't make it until 15 years later, though the kids from one generation to the next, like spores from a wildflower, have moved on with their knowledge of flatbread and boredom. 
and with the town mothers left behind to whistle at blackbirds, and with the town fathers left too without pity from God, though all the children believe they can return, as if returning from a far field before dark to speak the language of a sketched-out wind. Meanwhile, right now, this breeze and the first wrathless days of high desert sunlight wrestle with thorny recitations of spring. There are clouds gathering, Simone, and it looks bad. So now, with a cold draft sweeping in from the open window across my bare arms, like an inherited forgotten prayer of mist, I realize I have held out a chair to death long enough. And if the years still only half open and shiver, and the mind seeks kinship with the ecstasies of light. I was going to tell you about the mountain in the distance. It's visible from the second-story balcony right there and hovers in the west at the west, as if painted onto the sky. Snowy in the cloudless air, like a white scent, or the impeccable divination of the everyday with its streams burbling underground and its bare places facing the sun with flowerless promises of midsummer. Or let me tell you about what's beyond that, cutting in and out of the skies. The flight paths of a dozen gulls careering over the trust bridge of Astoria, 181 miles from here. Gulls like mystics that dissolve above the gray spattered waves. These are the goals of exaltation and goals of retreat, goals of the lost chances to bloom in springtime and be saved, and goals of communion and martyrs and forbidden places, and goals of Jews who abandon the saints. These goals cry, Simone, for the sacraments of lingering vigils and ruddy joys, and they hover, however clipped, in the upper white windlit plumes of the sky, hover and ache with their stained wings. Over where the river salts into the sea. If you were here, I'd call you confessor to these gulls. You, the bruiser, the cuddler, content with getting on a path to late vision, a little rasping, and a sharp-toothed swear. I wish today I could call you that. But it's just a rattling gull, humping and jiving and loose. Then suddenly, like a song for order and calm, having cried out toward an endless nothing, they go wire-backed and quiet like easy hours. And now, out of the mountain, comes the rain, rippling in the curves and pivots and tumult of this harbor of hills, humping against this hotel. Rain, and more rain, and dirty rain, more rain than even a poor farmer could hope for apparitional and panoramic rain, foretelling and flashing and implicit rain, the unspent story of rain, a ripped-toothed American West of rain, a magnum opus of rain, a jig of a good man's political liberty of rain, rain with the music of brutish trains I heard in dreams, and the pot bellies I carried up and down stairs, and the invisible flame of God I couldn't find, rain that's idiomatic and immaculate, that condenses the hours into parcels of sleepless years, ringing out the myth of one past, ringing out the myth of another past, the way the bodies of lovers get wrung out in the hours of flame and dark. Simone, I'm trying to remember all the good friends in the rest of the world, and I'm not sure anymore what road I've traveled. 
From here on out, I swear to nod at old men and greet the sun with less fright. I know that when the rain's clear and night petals the valley and sinks into a quilt of mist, the white clouds will stumble to the ground and the last of the light will slip off into the low grass and that will be the next tongue speak. David, thank you so much. Holy shit, that was unbelievable. <laughs> oh my god. Oh man. That is just like killing me. That was amazing. Um you know what I noticed in this poem is that the nouns that you use are familiar nouns, whether it's clouds or birds or windows or mountains. And remarkably they never you provide them a fresh and like new texture to where I've seen those nouns in other poems and they're dead. Yeah. And and you're able through voice, form and really just the power behind what is driving these that you provide them with a texture that is absolutely new and I I'm not even entirely sure how you pulled it off, but you did. And it allows the reader to adhere to those things in a new way and not be distracted by their commonality or their common use. And then to have, of course, the poem end on that last line is sort of like an ir irony to the familiarity of the nouns you use. And then there's all these other things. It was when you, there's this moment where you say it's visible from the second story balcony and you're like, right there you know i just like oh my god this is so heartbreaking because i felt like you wanted to possess that very thing you're pointing at and to like drag your friend's face until to see it with you <laughs> and to really own that thing that you're saying is right there and just before that whether it was i realized i held out a chair to death long enough even if the year is still only half open and shiver and the mind seeks kinship. And I thought in many ways that like encapsulated this entire book um, in so many ways. Um, but your poems also, you're very like kind of technically smart because you know how to get the poem to slide some with the repetition of the goals and the rain that you you perfectly get that momentum that heightened sense of self and that's where the poems they have such a generous energy and then that fact that they're being written to somebody not there is always that binary of an outpouring and then but it's an outpouring into an absence that to me is just so remarkable about the book and makes the book you know, so powerful. And well, thank you, John. Thank oh. you. I'm so glad that it, um, to hear you describe it that way. It's really, really fantastic. You know, I, I feel like one of the um, opportunities or challenges with the writing of the book was, you know, I, you see the epistolary tradition is, is long in, in the art. You know, for yeah. me, my experience of it begins with reading Horace, um, even as early as high school when I was, you know, studying Latin. 
And and out here in the West, there's you know 31 a book called 31 Letters and 13 Dreams by Richard Hugo, which I think is kind of a beloved book in this part of the world. Right. And other times we'll see the epistolary form, and it feels like that the poet doesn't really need the recipient. They're they're using it as an occasion <laughs> to meditate. Yeah. Something. And and one thing I um I guess stumbled upon, I, I won't take any credit for it, but felt was um, uh, um important to me was to to allow some meditation. I sort of discovered how to try to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. And also continue to speak to the person I'm speaking. The the meditation in T B Piero from Dufer is a meditation for him. It, for that recipient, right? It's about a connection between the two of us, and, and some of it adheres to things that he and I might know privately. Mm-hmm. But even then, they aren't—they aren't inside jokes or anything. They're just about our own intimacy. Um, yeah. The way in which you have friendships with multiple people, but there's a different um, tether for each one. There's a different wavelength, and trying to be on that wavelength and and use it as um, I don't know, an occasion to to tell them something that's on your mind, mm-hmm. share something. That that to me seemed like the opportunity that was available. Yeah, and I think by choosing this form, I mean <laughs> it's pretty ballsy in the sense of like I can't like it seems fraught with problems, you know, like it seems fraught with dangers. And like you said, like I'm writing this literally to a person and yet, how do I make it not just sound like make those um, dear whoever and like sincerely yours artificial bookends, you know? Um, and I think you, I think you achieve that remarkably well. I don't know. Thanks. You know, you think of like a Frank O'Hara, you know, who writes those poems that often sound like they were they were just notes to somebody, and sometimes they were. Yeah. And and the voyeuristic um, place that a reader's in, you know, watching his world exist. Yeah. Um, is, is cool. But it's also, and you know, now in the critical sense, it's also cool. Yeah. You can't, it's not warm. You can't penetrate it. Um, as much as it's a pleasure and as much as it's a, um, idea about art being casual. Yes. Um, a lot of these poems run. Um, they have rhyming patterns. They might rhyme in twos and threes in a row. Mm-hmm. The rhyming pattern is, is uh, I'm a negligent rhymer, so you know there'll be a pattern and it isn't present. I'll let it go and pick it up later and mm-hmm. so on. But many of the early ones, especially the shorter ones, um, creating some kind of oral balance beam was really important to me, so that I wasn't just writing. Yeah, no, you uh, can I. One of the most pleasurable things about reading these poems and and poems that are able to do this is when you come upon the rhyme and and you look back up into the into the lines and you have no idea what exactly it was rhyming with and <laughs> and you do that constantly it's uh it's always surprising when when you hear the interlocking uh phonemes kind of connect at the end of a line or in the middle of a line because it's, it's always subtle. It's always mysterious. Uh, and I think that's what the book kind of exudes in these letters is 
is a general just mystery into well all kinds of things. I want to move on to uh, the next poem that I wanted you to read, and it's to Smith um, from Northampton. And I confess, in many ways, since I lived in this area for a little while, I was kind of naturally drawn to it. Yeah. But I think it also captures um, a lot of what's uh, great about this book. Um, do you want to say anything about it before you read it? Sure, sure. I'd be glad to. Um, you know, one thing, uh, the poems are arranged, except for the very, very first one, are arranged almost exactly in the order in which I composed them. Mm-hmm. And and if someone comes to read the book, they will see that the poems begin, except for the very, very first one, which is sort of an introductory poem. It's the last one. Um, the poems are a page and a half or 50 lines, maybe 60 lines, eight, 40 lines. And it took me uh, some time to um, figure out how to make them longer. Um, you know, how to extend the meditation. Mm-hmm. And so and by the time we're getting out, down to, to Smith and Northampton, the poems are now two, three, sometimes four pages long and longer. Right. Um, and I, I don't really have an answer for that, but one of the things I realized, two things. One was I could embed stories in the poems. Mm-hmm. And so that there were stories inside the occasion that they could re- reference an occasion. And I could tell those stories, much as you would in a letter. You know, where you might write somebody say, you know, two nights ago we went out to this to this uh, occasion and met these people, and here's what happened. Let me describe to you what happened. And you would you would write that in a letter. Yeah. You know, so you could invite them into your into your world. And this one um, adopts that in a couple of places. The other thing I would say is um is um Jeff Smith is a very old friend of mine. He's uh, an, an artist. Um, in Boston, Massachusetts, um, he appears in the book a couple in a couple places. As does another person in this book, two other people. One is I call him Gif, which is Gif. He is a recipient of a couple of letters to one of my oldest friends. We're all from the same kind of generation of my life. And my son, um, who at the time was 17, he's now in his early 20s. Wow. And um, the uh, sonic um, joke for me was to call the poem to Smith from Northampton because. Smith College is in Northampton, Mass, and I just thought that was fine. Uh, and I and I was driving from Boston to Northampton. I was driving um, from Jeff Smith's house. I think that's probably the, the gloss of those are the glosses in there. Mm-hmm. To Smith from Northampton. God knows why the Jews of the 20th century put their Yiddish book center in the center of Jonathan Edwards' Protestant Western Mass. Luke and I found it on St. Joseph's Day on the way to Emily Dickinson's clothes for the season. So from outside her windows again, I imagined a small hand writing the words spider and light, despair and heft. And that was about all I got from the place, plus the exceptional hedges. Jeff, it's late winter, hard rain, harder wind and the Oxbow River flooded above the trunks of trees, the Oxbow grumbling at spring. In Western Mass, about half an hour from Gift's house on Harlow Street, the wind is never a gift, and the children, therefore, are dropping their store-bought flowers and turning away from the Oh, Come On Spring Festival. 
just outside of town, driving now for hours in and out of rain and the threat of rain. I stuck on my little bitch of afterthoughts. They straggle without hubbub. Who's a victor in this part of the world, I want to ask? What with the narrow roads and plavered houses and dainty apron patrons, and the roads already and far from the honky-tonk I grew up around in Harris County, Texas, where the women are divided by hike and class, and the men grow as quiet as stars. And strange as it may be, that's when I think of the last Western sandwich I ate in one of those greasy spoons on Nasser Road Fun three and a half decades ago. I can still taste the melted butter burnt in the skillet, and the minced onions, and the eggs, and the chopped ham, dash of pepper, slices of toast that were so thin they tasted like quiet disbelief. The eggs, so soft and well-fried, Jeff. It was like the pleasure of God keeping me out of hell. I remember, too, a wren suddenly in the threshold of the diner's door. It was a cactus wren, a healer, solitary. You'd think no one would turn against it, in that back row diner with its feet bag decor. But that wren tried to tear through a window, and the glass and the bird lay at our feet. I want to say it was like a prattle of empty-handed fears, but it just lay there. And all the gentlemen's gentlemen of the joint did absolutely nothing. One dude near whose feet the wren had died spied at me like a cobra. In the moment of understanding between us, I knew my life was not worth hawking to get worked up about it. That was then. That was Texas. In Western Mass, in the season of Lent, with the rivers flooded, days before your sons to be born into the unpaged century, I began to remember, as if in a dream, a hundred Yiddish sayings good for a boy like yours. A man cannot jump over his own shadow. A dog without teeth will also attack a bone. A bad peace is better than a good war. If you don't want to do something, one excuse is as good as another. A man comes from dust, and in the dust he will end. And in the meantime, it is good to sip a little gin. The names of sons, Jeff, are like the number of days. True. The old days are easier and easier to remember when the worry we had most wasn't fathers, but scoring a good spliff, ergo love, ergo all half of what was at hand. As even now, steering into the Pioneer Valley of Hampshire County, into a town in which no one is grieving over the Reichsmark or the end of Calvin Coolidge's mayorality, I imagine Giff is standing in the center of his map room right about now, studying the back roads and red between Headley and Belchertown, considering the landmarks like the Bridge of Flowers and Mount Tom and the homestead west of Cunnington of William Cullen Bryant. And Jeff, of course, you know my companion has been present all this time, my 17-year-old boy dozing in the passenger seat like a good lad. He sleeps with a little trouble and a little calm. I know times like this I'm crawling toward the next horizon and facing the evening sky, a little nearer than I want it to be, but there it is, with its half-mast current of stars. Your new son is dazed from being born, 
and the sun floats like a pastel lure beyond the offing, and the Connecticut River is lovely again below us, and the rains are suddenly breaking above Protestant Northampton, and the Yiddish looks crack open their borscht belt wisdom, always send a lazy man for the angel of death. A penny is not a, a penny is a lot of money if you haven't got a penny. Cancer, schmancer, as long as you're healthy. Dear God, you do wonderful things for other people, why not for me? And the next town over, Emily Dickinson is asleep for the season. And Jonathan Edwards, too, is sound asleep as in death. Your boy is sleeping inside the womb of his mother. And my boy sleeps dreamily with his feet on the dashboard, sleeps dreamily with his bluesman's mop of hair, soft as a nest, a little snoring, curled, waiting to be born into manhood and young friendship. Sleep, my son, sleep. Sleep. David, thanks. That was so unbelievable. It was like one of my favorite poems. In the uh, in the book, yeah, you you hit on, I don't, you hit on so many things. I don't even know where to begin, but I will say that your poems seem to always be kind of shuttling between uh, the disenchanted and the enchanted world. And what made me, what popped out of this poems and a couple of others, I think, is the word, uh, the pioneer here, it's the pioneer Valley and elsewhere. It was a post pioneer uh, hotel or whatever. And that this, it made me think of, and this is where the book seems intrinsically American in so many ways, and that that this this kind of space between the American wilderness and weather and how much it's been subdued and civilized, it seems that you are are always shuttling between so far across the country in these poems that you keep weaving it in and out of this enchanted wilderness of thinking where you invoke religion and God and then swerve back into these more disenchanted or more kind of secular values, which I think in many ways, friendship replaces that enchantment of values of religion, but that they're constantly at play in your poems, that friendship is and camaraderie and kinship is, has taken a similar role as, as a, you know, I don't want to say religion, but that kind of impulse towards something beyond ourselves, and that in this poem, I and it just occurred to me as I was reading it that this very curious section, when you say that's when I think of the last Western sandwich I ate in one of those greasy spoons on NASA, and the to invoke NASA was so, you know really invoked our understanding of the universe and our place in it for me. And then you telescope immediately back down into the very kind of tactile, microscopic reality of the sandwich, and that if you, and that you don't you you linger on that sandwich too, which is you know whether it's like a pristine memory or something, but you do telescope right into the sandwich, which ends with saying the egg so soft and well fried, Jeff, you know, and that and that the earthly and and the beyond the earth ended in this friend in a way was really remarkable to me. And then invoking Emily Dickinson, 
you know, seeing Emily Dickinson right next to Jonathan Edwards, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that you, that your poems embody almost what it means to be an American and what it means to live through American history and, and the course of intellectual history in our country and what it means and those, and those tensions that are constantly playing out towards whether it's between the religious or the secular or something greater beyond ourselves or replacing those totems in our lives. And that I think your book in many ways elevates friendship and human relationships to you push it to its very limits towards some sort of divinity. And it's really remarkably done. And I loved how you brought up Bridge of Flowers because uh, I believe that's in Coleraine, Massachusetts. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's really remarkable the way you Thanks. have constructed these. No, I appreciate that. You know, you think of, uh, you know, the American experience in literature is, you know, or in the poetic experience in, in the kind of manic ways, you know, you're writing <clears throat> toward, on, in, after, beyond, to the end of, the beginning of the open road. Mm-hmm. And and I also think that, you know, those roads aren't going nowhere. They're, they're connections. Much as, you know, you look at those flight maps on, you know, in the, when you take a, an airplane flight and you see all those red lines connecting mm-hmm. hubs to each other. And they're also, it's an open sky, I guess would be the fair analogy, but they're also connecting you. They're grounding you. At some point, you have to get off the road and park. You know, you have to arrive somewhere. Right. And I, I do feel that, you know, in our political environment at the moment, and the kind of, um, um, I don't know, distress ran in, connect, in terms of connection as we've, um, we've lost for, for the time being, and we have other times in our history, we've lost the, I don't know, the Rand McNally sense of connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the roads, that, that the roads aren't only for us to leave each other, they're for us to be reunited upon. And, and friendship maybe is the, is the, um, least elusive of those. And, and, you know, one's friends, your oldest friends, close friends, or close, um, in some of these cases, these were poets, you know, who I'm very close to personally, they're kind of literary comrades. Um, they're, you know, to borrow your, uh, framework, they are your, uh, the saints of your life. You know, they are the yeah. prophets of life. Um, what, uh, what best defines French, old, close friendship is you never catch up. Yeah. You, know, you might not see someone for a while, but as soon as you are reunited, you're in that moment. You know, you're, you're just being friends together. You don't have to, whereas other kinds of acquaintances, if you haven't seen them for a while, you spend 15, 20 minutes asking them what's going on, how's it going, what have you been doing, what have you been up to? Yeah. With your, with your best friends, you don't bother. That doesn't, you don't need to be brought up to speed because the, the friendship flattens that. Yeah. No, I mean, there's no greater comfort than, than that in many ways is that, yeah, you just don't have to explain yourself. <laughs> yeah. And, but I love the way you said the roads, the roads just aren't there for departures, that they're, uh, they're there for arrivals. And yet, it seems that the departures, <laughs> it's like you visit someone and then you leave. <laughs> you know, it's like the departures yeah. always seem so terrible and, and the arrivals are, well, I think what the argument, at least I'm hearing is, um, you know, maybe slow down those arrivals and, and, 
rest in those as much as the departures. Um, I think so. I think so. And, and those, I also feel, uh, and you were mentioning this as well, that, you know, the attractions on those roads, let's call them, aren't just, you know, wall drug. I mean, you know, they're, they're attractions which are historic. Yeah. Uh, they're political. They're private. Um, you know, um, you know, it doesn't really matter in this poem, but, you know, when I was, uh, living in the same city as, uh, in Boston with Jeff Smith and, and, with, uh, Rick Gifford, who were, you mentioned in that poem, we had, um, uh, a weekly, I think Saturday, often Sundays, we had breakfast together. We'd go to this little restaurant in Boston that we like to go, Alfred's, um, seafood and deli, and we had breakfast. So the, the fried egg part, you know, the whole description of the sandwich, yeah. it wasn't just because I remember the sandwich, it's because there's a connection that, that the Jeff Smith recipient and, you know, the, the letter writer have, because they don't really matter, to, they don't need to be explained in the poem. Right. But that's where that kind of connection, I think, um, get, got, um, discovered. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's part of the, I think that helps make it feel intimate because it's authentic. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And it's interesting too, because in this poem and the last one, and it's just a, a side note really, but that the appearance of birds, um, struggling seems to, you know, seem to appear often. Let's, uh, the last poem I'm going to have you read is the, the last poem in the book. Um, and anything you want to say about it, uh, before, uh, you read it. Sure. Um, the poems written to my wife, uh, Wendy Willis. Um, there's several poems to her throughout the book. Um, she's a poet, uh, um, and as well, terrific poet. And, um, you know, I have this um, kind of working theory, just for me, I don't apply it to others, um, that, and I think about it enough, I definitely think about it in that kind of diagnostic phase I was describing, or mm-hmm. that Louise Gluck describes, that um, the last poem of the book is a, um, both a resolution of the book, uh, I guess naturally, and also a, um, a porthole into seeing what comes next. And, yeah. and I definitely find myself, as I start a new book, um, for a little while, really thinking about that last poem and what it was indicative of, or what, what, what it might be leading to. And the last poem of um, the Book of Men and Women ends with a couple that have been, you know, kind of gone through the fire a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple um, sitting in a garden and they finally can sort of feel the light on them, you know, the warmth of the light. Mm-hmm. And they kind of imagine a future in which they're the, the fire, the, the light is not fiery, it's warmth. And I certainly had in mind keeping that, that little sub narrative alive. And, and this poem ends, um, uh, at our house, uh, it's written from our house, which we call the crow's nest. Mm. I won't describe why. <laughs> but I, I've always nicknamed houses. Yeah. And this one, this one's name is the crow's nest. And, um, 
the uh, it's a poem of, uh, of arrival, right? where the travel ends. Yeah. And it references uh, one place, um, uh, Forsyth County, North Carolina. That's where uh, Winston Salem is. <clears throat> and I had part of the reason I was traveling so much was I was teaching at Wake Forest University. I'm living here, and so I was going back and forth across the country. Hmm. And around the same time, uh, Wendy, my wife, was also traveling a ton, and that's uh, hmm. indicated in the book. To Wendy from the Crow's Nest. If not from dream before dawn, and the rain has not perished over the house, and you have sworn off four nights of sleep, and I have wrestled with the mind of airplanes and birth, and to know that you are leaving, it, leaving again in the morning with me staying, or is it the other way around, me leaving and you staying, or both of us boarding another flight to a strange city? And always, too, both of us wondering if any of this exists. Sleep, skies, birth, mumbling in the frontiers of hotel rooms, hauling our slender passports. Plus, speaking in forgotten tongues made up from the peasant poems of the Jews and the soft, feathered hymns of the Cherokee. And you so happy when we strolled through the Dixie Classic Fair that autumn day in Forsyth County, North Carolina, because the caramel apples were made by hand, and the tender pigs raced so hard around the swine track for their cookie, and the blue ribbon chestnuts and sunflower seeds lay in their trays like hearts, and the ladies from First Baptist serving fried tomatoes whispered to us that we must avoid the brownies, but it's okay to eat the sweet potato pie. And then, all day, not one Carolinian stopped us to talk about the trophies of eternity. But remember, all of this does exist, including the windy Moravian spires and the dazzling bright Sunday hats, including the creeping lawns trimmed out to the roads, including the avenue of the arts unzipping after dark with its four-colored roosters and fried chicken on trade streets and secret marriages, and the bronze whiskey at Finnegan's Pub brought over by felt girls with shaved heads, and the two of us exhausted of drink and finally quiet, so quiet, as if we could hear clarity bobble up from the bottom of the earth, so quiet, lushly quiet, leaf by murmuring leaf quiet, and now home, home in our own room, a nest above the garden's light, and waking. David Byfield, thank you for joining me on New Books and Poetry. Thanks, John. I really appreciate this, and I'm so grateful to you for all you're doing for poetry and for the literary arts in the country. Thank you. Thank you, David.